welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. to the races. Um, welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, my guest today is Aaron Duffy, who is the founder, creative lead and founder of Special Guest. Um, the podcast is coming from, well, he's in Wisconsin and I'm in, I'm in Brooklyn, but he should really be in Brooklyn. Um, so welcome, Aaron. Nice, nice to meet you. Nice to uh, set up this conversation. And um, I wonder if you could start off by taking us through a little bit of your background. You know, it's the kind of question I ask is, how did you get to where you got to today? And you could actually start whenever you wanted to, like when I was a small child or whatever you feel is appropriate. Sure. Well, thanks, Ed. It's an honor to be asked to talk and, um, yeah, I'm I'm, come, I'm speaking to you from Wisconsin, but I do wish I was in Brooklyn. The I I can start with the when I was a small child part of it. Um, I I don't I don't know exactly when I started figuring out what I wanted to do, the things that I'm doing right now. But I I do give a little bit more credence now than I did when I was younger to I think the family business that I grew up around. It was not something that I knew a lot about when I was little, but I think it was always there. The family business was licensing Broadway musicals uh, for you know theater companies really all around the world, um, especially for schools, but also you know bigger Broadway productions. And it was not—I wouldn't call it necessarily a creative business. You know, it, it was a kind of a law business. You know, they they dealt a lot in copyright law and. Um, protecting the rights holders of the this IP and stuff like that, things that I even still today don't know a ton about. But, you know, we were going to a lot of musicals and I think generally having that around me, maybe more than anything was about the 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 family working in that world and dealing with artists a lot made it, more possible for that kind of artistic upbringing to be. So um, uh, whenever I wanted to be creative, people were definitely in favor of that, um, maybe rather than the other way around that can happen. So I think that I think that was probably really important. And so whenever I was making something, building something, it was highly encouraged. So that was really nice. Um, I decided that I wanted to go to art school out of high school. I went to Washington University in St. Louis and I chose that program. What was the program that you were on? Yeah. So I, I I chose that school because when I got, I, I was looking for a school where I thought I could do both good academics, but also art school. I didn't want to go to just a design school, let's say, um, I was like not entirely sure exactly what I wanted to do, but then they had a visual communications program there that I 
felt I could do kind of animated things and video things that I wanted to be doing. There wasn't like formal training in those things, but it was very open to learning about the communication side of that kind of media. So I was an illustration major and they also let me dabble a lot in sculpture uh, work and things like that. So I started combining those things in what I was doing. And in particular, like early at school, I did a project that I still sort of use as a, as a, inspiration point today, which I don't, I still don't know why I did it at the time, but I, I solidified my hands and feet in, in blocks of concrete and walked around the campus for two days and, um, had, had to have them chipped off by a friend because my hands were swelling inside them. And it was, it was just one of those kinds of, and then I was really fortunate that my, my girlfriend at the time was also really into video and decided to document this whole thing so I now have like good video of it and then once I she had shot the video I had to teach myself how to edit because I was like what do I do with all this footage and so that all all of those things I I I miss school a lot because it it was those kinds of unplanned and haphazard and even dangerous things were the the things that I probably learned from the most and definitely the education um fostered that and I I'm sure kids are finding their way today, but I feel really bad for, you know, kids who are missing that, missing out on that right now, I think is such a bummer, but um, was it'll, it, it'll was come it back. Competitive? Was it quite competitive, the environment in terms of? Um, that's a great question. I would say, I, I don't know that competitiveness was pushed. I was very competitive. I know that. I think I not, I would, might not have said that at the time, but I think people would have said that. And I, um, may, maybe too much sometimes. I, I think one of the, the, the good things about at least that kind of art school, and this is something we talk about in the studio quite a bit today, is that we were brought up with the critiquing system. And critique is something you can kind of tell pretty quickly when someone has, has been brought up with critique and not, you know, and, and that goes for, especially for clients. Um, that we need to remember that some clients are not brought up with art school critique. And we need to find ways of, of using our understanding of critique and, and reframe it a little bit um, for people who are not used to that. In other words, not used to tearing down their work, you know? Um, so the only initiated in the non-art school uh, grads, how would, you, how would you describe critique? Yeah, so um, it's basically that you are making something, which is a putting yourself in a vulnerable position to begin with, you know, um, and you are both, when you're making it, you're both ready to defend it and receive criticism of the thing that you're making. And it has to be expected. You're not, you're not making it thinking you're going to get no feedback or no critique. You're, you're taking it into a space where actually the expectation is that everyone has some kind of criticism of it. It's, it's constructive criticism, hopefully, if it's good, if it's a good crit, but um, it's, it it can be harsh and it can feel bad because especially if you spent three days up all night making a not so good drawing, you know, and you feel bad about it and then people are critiquing it. 
Um, but it really, I, I find it to be such a crucial thing, at least for me, upbringing, because um, it's what we do today. You know, like the, we, we make things, we put ourselves in a vulnerable position to put ourselves out there, hopefully pushing something new or different and new and different things are always going to be criticized in some way. And it's being criticized by the person who's paying you in this case, instead of your professor or um, you're paying them actually. Um, and so that, that critiquing system and, and knowing how to critique, you know, it's not just about receiving it's, it's knowing how to give a critique to your classmates. And so we, every once in a while, we sort of talk about that and we, we sort of make sure we're all comfortable with that. And, um, just an approach you take internally with with your team and your your folks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that voices can be heard. Everyone's voices can be heard. Everyone can have a critique. That no one's afraid of receiving it, and we we move along like that, and it makes things better. I heard I was listening to a, I was listening to a podcast with an interview with Tom York, who said the moment he decided that he was not cut out for art was when he was asked to bring his paintings into a critique session and he had 11 paintings of Jesus and they were just, oh my God. <laughs> and they were really bad and they were really bad and he knew they were bad, but I don't think he was prepared for what he was, what he was going to hear from, from his fellow classmates. Um, and then I think That's the, other so thing, interesting. the other thing it reminds me of is the sort of Pixar stories around this. That is, that is, I mean, the height, I mean, Pixar makes amazing things. I think critique has a lot to do with that. But you're right. The, the, the issue with clients who don't understand the constructive part of it, it's, uh, it's where mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you, sometimes you get into trouble. So, so we, we're, talking, we're talking about um, doing experiments at college and the critiquing process. And then where do you go from there? Yeah, um, well, I think the those experiments one one other thing that i think i learned at that time maybe more um in the back of my mind not so much uh directly is what things give people a little bit of joy like what what perks people up when they see something and looking back i i know that becomes a very addictive thing you want to make something that gives people that reaction and you know which thing i would learn over time which things that i would make would do that and which things really wouldn't and that also became a really important thing and so when i when i think about what to do next what i was going to do next um i knew that it had to be something that would give that sort of reaction uh another sort of um uh, uh, formative point was when I studied abroad in Florence mm -hmm. and at, at the time I, I thought I wanted to be maybe um, going into sculpture or, or something like that um, or video art for example and I was around all of these churches obviously and we had our sort of art history classes that were actually in the spaces instead of seeing them in the art history books and it was a very lucky thing to be there because I, I just had this moment when I was standing in 
these churches. I was my, the play, the host family I lived with was very close to Santa Croce, and there's all these frescoes by uh, Giotto in there about um, the life of Saint Francis, and I just remember looking at them and feeling like. Yes, these are amazing paintings, and I was learning about Giotto's technique and this sort of humanism that he was bringing. But more than anything, what I was thinking is, why are these here? And we, th these were the sort of debates that we were having as a class with our teacher. And um, for my, my final paper that I wrote for that class, I was basically just making the case that these were great paintings, but more than that, they were really advertisements for the church. And they, they had this um, superhero character that they created, like this, this Iron Man character, Jesus, that was so compelling that, and these stories were so amazing that people just wanted to be in the church. And it, I feel it's maybe not fair to make this comparison, but I think it's a fun, like fun to, I, I love going to like Marvel movies and things like that. And I, I, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I would have been in that church just to see those paintings the same way I like to go to a Marvel film at a theater. And, and I think that, that feeling of like creating content the way Giotto was creating content that had a purpose in a way, whatever that purpose might be, that could give people that kind of reaction and, and inspiration to, to do something, I thought was pretty exciting. And so it kind of shifted me more towards the world that I'm in now to try and think, how do, how do we make something that has that kind of effect so both the sort of joy effect that I was talking about earlier, but also the sort of fun the function of creativity, uh, the way that it happened throughout the Renaissance. Very cool. So, so what do you where do you start? You 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 finish school. What 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 do you start doing? One of the first things I did was wait tables, which was um, I, I also think like another formative thing. Let me know if I don't ever come through well. Um, I can keep my camera off if it's better. Um, so, and waiting tables, I felt like was kind of akin to also the critiquing system, you know, just in a different way. It was, um, uh, it was learning how to be a service person and how to understand the way that the client is always right. It's not just a phrase. It's, it was a very real thing. And if you wanted a good tip, you really had to work for it. And even then they, you might not get it. And so the waiting tables at some kind of, some, some particularly ritzy places. Was this, um, here, was this here in New York? You're doing one of them was actually in Martha's Vineyard. Uh, yeah. So I, I did, I did uh, summers in Martha's Vineyard where I, I worked at a, um, a small art gallery and waited tables for the summers. And the other was in um, Greenwich, Connecticut. So uh, the, and the, just the experience um, of seeing like how to be a good service person was also really helpful. I didn't wanna be doing it, frankly. I didn't, I just didn't know what else to do. 
and I was sort of doing little animation projects at night and waiting tables. And um, I still think today that that was really helpful. And when I when I'm talking to potential hires or or interns or things like that, I, I always think it's actually kind of nice to see a little bit of that experience outside our world. I think there's there's this feeling that every single internship has to be for an agency or for like a studio or something like that. And those experiences are obviously great, but there's, I feel like there's almost this shame in um, not having your entire resume on that track sometimes, you know, and um, I think there's, there's so many other experiences that can develop like a great uh, work ethic and, and creative mind. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, it's kind of like being creative in general. You see, you, you know, you should have got to go outside. You've got to break. You got to have breaks. Otherwise you have nothing to feel the creativity. Yeah, so, definitely. Um, I mean, waiting yeah. tables was also a great place to fail. You know, like I had some real, like I had some real waiting table fails, you know, <laughs> like I, I still think today there, there, there's some amazing parallels to waiting tables, even in what we do, which is if you're in, in some of the restaurants I was in, uh, you as a waiter you might have five tables that you're responsible for let's say um and sometimes all those tables were just going and sometimes it was kind of slow there's just one table and that one table is always the one you'd fuck up like the that the if you only had one table going they inevitably had bad service when when all the tables were running you just were on it and and you were making great tips and they were get, having a great experience. And I, I, I think about that today where I, I, those slow moments, the feeling is almost like, oh, well, we're really gonna like get this one right. And, and it's actually just great to be like nice and busy that things like work a lot better. Yeah, it's something about sort of the adrenaline, isn't it? It's something about the, 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 the you, you kind of, as you said, you're kind of on versus, yeah. you know, this is not really, we're not really busy. You're kind of half, half engaged and that's a dangerous place to be. It make, makes a lot Definitely. of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, From, so, so, so have you got a full-time job? Are you about to get a full-time job now? So, um, not long after that, uh, I did get my first internship at an amazing place that doesn't exist anymore called lifelong friendship society. And I was, I was lucky to hear about them actually in my, my senior year of college. I, um, uh, so a, a, a former student of the visual communications program named Lauren Hartstone had come back for a wedding in St. Louis and had decided to just meet with a couple of us that happened to be working with animation experiments and video experiments. And, at that time, I, I still thought that I was gonna have to do this animation thing on an experimental level and be an artist. I didn't, I didn't think, I didn't know what the industry was like. And she had started out of school, had started working at Loyal Casper. And uh, she, when she came back, she was saying, there's this whole industry where you can do these animation experiments and they'll pay you to do these and they will be on TV. You know, it's like, well, like I, I know it sounds crazy. It sounds even crazy to me now, but we just didn't know that. It wasn't, 
that at school, there wasn't a lot of exposure to industry like that at the time. I think they're a lot better at, at that today, but we didn't know. And she said, you should reach out to these places. And she put Psy up on the list and she put Lifelong Friendship Society on the list and brand new school. I remember at like those three were on the list. And the place I was doing the most experimental stuff was Lifelong Friendship Society. And I reached out to them and they didn't get back to me for months and months and months. So, and eventually I, I asked Lauren to like poke them. And so they begrudgingly got back to me and said I could come and help organize their HTML website uh, as an intern. And eventually started helping them with little stop motion projects, then basically was the stop motion director on a project they just threw at me um, that didn't have a lot of money. And um, that, so I was doing that and I, I still today um, just am really thankful for uh, that. That team has sort of dispersed to other places, but um, they were amazing. And I happened to then go to a Super Bowl party one night working on one of those stop motion experiments, went to a Super Bowl party and met the assistant to a very new studio called First Ab Machine. And she said, oh, you do stop motion, you should talk to us just randomly. And I met who's now my partner today, Serge Patsak, uh, founder of First Ab Machine and met his partner, Arvin. And they said, do you want to be a director? <laughs> so I said, sure, I, I want to be a director. I didn't really know exactly what that meant at the time. We didn't know how we were going to get the work. I was, other than Arvin, who was one of the founders, I was the first director to be picked up at First Ab Machine. It's 30 directors today. So the we just started trying to bring in work and um, got to, at the time it was all CG, you know, all computer graphics CG, but Arvin had really pioneered uh, a look that was not happening quite um, so much at the time. Today, it's like quite popular, but um, he was mixing very photorealistic CG robots into real video spaces in a very raw way. And they even would make these things and they would get calls from people wanting to buy these robots, you know, th things like that um, back in the day. And uh, so it was really exciting to be paired up with them. Um, I was directing there for um, basically from 2007 uh, until today, I'm still a director on the roster, but uh, we did a couple projects that really kind of moved things along for us. One of the first ones was for Audi. It was um, basically, it was for the, the Q5 and it was basically turning a cardboard box into a car over time. And it was for, for the UK market. And I remember I'd, I'd never shot a car before, obviously I'd never done a car commercial. Um, I was 23 and the, um, the agency, I don't think knew that I didn't know any of these things. We sort of had a very fake it till you make it. That's probably another sort of like thing to, to sort of put on the, the board. I'm sure everyone has that, but fake it till you make it is super important. And I remember Serge telling me to try and grow a beard, to try and look older and like see if, to make sure there was no problems, which I literally can't do. So the that that was great. Um, it, 
um, for what it's worth, got our first bronze lion, you know, I, and I remember someone telling us, Hey, we got a bronze lion. And I was like, what is that? Like, what is this lion thing? So we we that, just were not aware. Process, what was that process like for you? You know, you didn't really know anything about this. You'd never done a car commercial. You're working with a UK yeah. agency. How, how did you find the whole experience? So the, the, the fake it till you make it part of it is one thing, but also um, I remember just being very focused on the things that I cared about and having a really great team around me, which um, we we produced it with our partners at Passion Pictures at the time, um, who also repped us in the in the UK. And I co-directed it um, uh, with one of the directors there, uh, who is a um, uh, cell animation uh, person. And so there's a character on the box that was cell animated. He did the cell animation. Um, and, uh, I did the storytelling and the, the sort of look and feel of the, the car and box and stuff like that. And the thing I remember being most determined about is just how many times I'd seen cardboard box CG animation and just felt really let down by that, uh, just looking horrible. And, and I, and I was just building little test cardboard box um, elements and just telling the CG team, like, we need to make it look like this. We need the details to be very, uh, as real feeling as possible, because ideally to me, we would have made it in stop motion with cardboard, but that was, that was impossible. So, um, and I think that's one of the things that sort of let it, um, uh, work. I think another thing was that the, I give the agency team a lot of credit for picking, um, a Woody Guthrie track that just like made the whole thing work in the end. People don't necessarily realize that like the music is what makes it work so well. So, so I can't take credit for, for, yeah, it's so, so important. And that track alone to license was more than our production. So it was, you know, it, it tells you the value, you know, like the value yeah. is there yeah. and it, it really made it work. Um, so you get a phone that, call and you said you get a phone call and you said the spots run a bronze line and you go, what 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 is that? Yeah, I didn't really um I didn't really know. That was actually the same year that uh I had the my my first little short yarn film uh in in Cannes as well. So I knew about that. I knew the the Saatchi new director showcase, and that's what I, I sort of thought was going on there. But then at the same time, this this bronze line, and I'm starting to learn you know, what the industry likes, you know, what, what things get recognition and, and stuff like that, um, which, you know, we were not super focused on at first. And from there, the nice thing about that project was it got noticed enough that it was with BBH, you know, um, BBH was the, the agency that BBH looked at us again to help them with some of their their first Google work at the time. So they had just, I guess, gotten this Google Chrome account. Google Chrome hadn't existed yet. So uh, this is like over 10 years ago. So they were getting this Google account, account together. And my understanding of what happened, I don't know if this is actually the case, but they had thought that they would be creating this first campaign with the artist Blue. I don't know if you know Blue, but he was like, got very well known at the time for doing 
giant cell animation murals on the oh, yeah, on yeah. walls yeah. and then repainting over them and drawing them again. Yeah. And I guess pretty late in the game, he was like, no, I don't do commercial work. And so they were like, what do we do? So uh, we, they looked at us after doing that Audi work and we started coming up with ideas for all the different benefits of the Google Chrome browser. And one of those like eight benefits, we did, we did a different film for each benefit. One of the eight benefits was the speed of the browser. There was also incognito mode and all those things that were new at the time. And, but the speed little short video that we made, um, it was this really fun idea about time relativity and how you, when you click for a, a website to load for, for a human eye, it's not very, you know, it, it just happens in an instant, you know, but in reality, there are actually like a lot of things loading in the background and stuff like that. So we had to find a way to like explain this kind of complicated thing that the human eye can't even see and doing it with phantom cameras and comparing it to a very object is, was built into that series of, of benefit videos. And this was for the UK. They were like launching in the UK first. And after that, after they did all of those, it was like all these eight benefits. And that wasn't even my favorite part of it. The speed one wasn't my favorite part. There are other things I liked more, including yarn and stuff like that. The, the, um, the head of Google Creative Labs said, well, for the US market, it's gonna be all about speed. It's gonna be like 100% about speed. And so we created this film series called Google Speed Tests. And um, that, uh, it included comparing the speed of the browser to a potato gun, which is like combust this combustion moment, um, a Tesla coil and the speed of sound. And um, with this sort of like splash of paint. And that uh, was super fun to make it for me. It, it took me back to those sort of like experiments from school um, where we, we really got to, it didn't feel like making advertising, you know, it really felt like Films. actually, yeah, put it really putting something to the test, you know, mm -hmm. like really like making an, a little experimental film. And I think that quality of it did pay off quite a bit. It was like one of the most awarded things that year. And um, did you, you have know, any brought us back to can? Do you, did you find, you know, going back to this critiquing process, that you experienced at art school. Now you're kind of in the thick of it. You've got, you're in the middle between a client agency creatives. And it was that an interesting experience because, or did you, would, was it, was it great? Cause you felt that there was a lot of understanding and, and, and you had actually quite a lot of freedom. Well, I think the critiquing experience 100% was there. I mean, there, there was like more freedom than normal, I think, in that project to, to come up with ideas. But I remember in particular, I think two days before the shoot, we were in the pre-production meeting with Robert Wong, um, who, you know, leads um, Creative Labs. And he, he just said, there's something missing, you know, from this, this sound speed of sound communication. And the, the idea that was there is that we had like a, we had a keytar, like a keyboard and there a, a, a drum pedal was gonna hit it. 
and that sound was going to go through a giant speaker that had paint on it and the paint was going to fly up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, what's, there's nothing this, I mean, I didn't feel there was anything missing from that. It was just going to look so cool. And the slow motion was going to be great. And this visceral sort of like splash was going to happen. And he was basically, his problem was, and this is where, like, I think it felt like being back in the critiquing room, you know, again, and, and that's, and there's a lot of pressure on that. Cause like everything's ready to shoot, you know, we're, we're not like ready to change anything, you know? And he was like, it just needs, the paint needs to go somewhere. The paint needs to like arrive somewhere. And because otherwise it's not a test. Like it, I'm, I'm not feeling like this sort of race. And the more we talked about it, the more I understood it. And he's like, there needs to be a giant ear above this. And I was like, where are we going to get like a giant ear in like a day? We have to shoot this in a day. And amazingly, the, the production designer team like ran around New York and eventually found a costume store that had an enormous ear. And, and that actually did make the piece, you know, it, at the end, it's not even my favorite of the three, but it would have really been the one of the weaker ones without that ear. The ear made it like when the paint goes in and touches the ear, you like feel it touch your ear. And like it's it's um, Robert was like totally right. So I I I think back to this, this is sort of maybe becoming a theme of what we're talking about, but clients are like a huge part of our creative process. You know, they're not, they're like, they know, they know what they need, but they ne don't necessarily know how to talk about it or, um, and, and we need to be there to try and like pull it out of them. Cause the, the creative idea is more in them, I think, than it is in us. We just, we're like there to sort of like try and wrench it out. And, and I think it's good to just like, remember, I try and remember those experiences. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really interesting because, you know, you, you've got to have somebody who kind of, I mean, what Robert was doing there was kind of like, this is how we make the idea better. And he's a true, he's a kind of a creative partner. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, which is, you know, sometimes for a lot of people, a hard thing to embrace. I I came from the UK. I was working in advertising in the UK and I came to the US. And there was just a marked difference between the way directors are treated in the UK and they are in the US. In the UK, it's very much, you're sort of the third person in the creative team. Yep. And in the US, it's it had my experience of being a much more of an order taker of, of, of not a true collaborator. We have this vision, you go execute it for us. Um, and uh, that was, that was very, I, I mean, personally, I feel obviously I'm biased because I grew up in the UK, but I do feel the quality of the craftsmanship and the work is often better because the director is recognized as being such an important player mm -hmm. um, in in the in the in the output and um, anyway, I just I just my the the most important commercials and that I grew up with have always been the work of really great directors and and really great creatives. It's been the combination of the two that have made things great. You're, you're you're totally, in my experience, you're totally right about that. And we were very lucky 
in the early days of First Ave that a lot of our work came from the UK. And I didn't even understand, you know, this difference. I didn't, I couldn't imagine that there would be much of a difference, but there, there was, and there still is, I just directed um, a super fun series for Ford um, at the end of last year. And, um, but it's for the U S market and, and we're not in the edit, you know, like we're just not in the, we're not invited in the edit. And as the case was, I was super busy anyway on stuff, but like, you know, it's, it's just a funny feeling, you know, like yeah. in, in the UK, you're like there that you're there for it, you know? Yeah. And it's, and it, and I, I don't know why those things developed, but I mean, the, the, what, what you're mentioning is also like part of the reason that we created special guests not long after the, um, you know, that Google work and stuff like that. Um, maybe like a couple of years after we started developing this idea that we are a first ad machine is a production company and, and, and agencies come to that production company, but we also kind of believe that there is this kind of unicorn. Uh, there's this unicorn that exists that is somewhere between a director and a creative director at an agency. And we wanted to build a company that can really like foster that. And uh, so, and, and so we built special guests as a totally separate company um, that could really take on direct to client work and work with brands and use our sort of creation, our sort of hyper making qualities and our communication abilities to build an agency essentially. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, that's what I spent, spend most of my time doing to, like today. I still direct maybe one or two things a year, but um, we're really been building special guests and that's been super fun. Yeah. So, um, so is is the so you're saying the bulk of that business now is working directly with brands, working directly with clients, not through agents. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes we'll we'll partner with agencies on things, but it's it's a we have our totally own client list and um, work direct. But you know, the the, the truth of it is that. Um, but when we first started it, it was a very distinct, like black and white kind of situation. But even in the early days of, of directing for me, like one of the first things I directed was also just creative labs just came to me as a director and wanted to work. And we made um, their first, basically Google's first TV commercial together, which, um, which was Parisian love. And, that experience, we didn't know it at the time, but that that experience was what would inspire special guests just to say, like, actually, um, this concept of agency of record and this idea that that brands will only work with one agency is, at least for some companies, is, is breaking down. And um, there's good reasons for that sometimes. And, and then sometimes it's just good for like a brand like Google to work with like lots of different places. And uh, sometimes they just want to work with people who are very production minded, um, strategic and production minded. And so we started building the company out of that. Um, I, I, it also sort of goes to sort of like a, a philosophy that is maybe just theoretical. I don't know if it's something that 
that it, it's, I don't know if it's the trend where things are actually going, but I like the idea of it, which is that the, all companies should have an in-house creative team. I think mm -hmm. like all, all, all brands should have that one way or the other in, in varying ways. And why the you, reason why, is, why do you say that? There is from looking at, at creative labs, for example, or, you know, the factory at Facebook or, um, you know, um, even, you know, the internal Spotify team, mm. um, there is just an energy that comes from a creative team like that, that, that isn't just about the marketing. I think, I think it like filters through the entire company when there's sort of like a creative engine there and it's, it has a sort of halo effect. And it, at least from what I've seen, I've never worked inside one of them, but from having worked with them, there's there's this sort of halo effect and it, it kind of, I mean, I chalk it up also to what we talked about earlier with the critiquing system, because you're now having people within the company that have this sort of different yeah, they background. Have different, and like yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, with both those examples, with all of those examples, you got you got engineering DNA. You got very yeah. left brain engineering DNA, and suddenly within that culture, you've got all these right brain weirdos doing yeah, crazy exactly. stuff. And yeah. and what what you're saying is you kind of need that. You you, you do. kind of need that. If it was all the left brains, um, and you get nothing good. Yeah, and and I also I mean I. This is like a whole other rabbit hole for us to, to get into at some point, but it's it's super inspiring because there's the there needs to be more slots in the world for creative people in general. So like, and if you open up all these roles for people at all these other companies mm -hmm. that are actually like creative roles, mm -hmm. um, it, it it shouldn't necessarily be siloed into are you a fine artist or do you work at like an ad agency, you know? Like let's open them all up and get people working at all the, and it's happening, you know, it's that, that is, that is the trend. And I, I think that generally, I can't say it, I'm not going to go and say like, it makes the world better, but at least I think it can make industry better. It can make companies better mm -hmm. when there's those like creative agencies inside them. And we, we find that we're building special guests for that future, you know, yeah, like that, that, good. that's, that's what we want. I mean, you, you, you've seen this firsthand. To me, one of the most challenging things about being a director or being a photographer um, in, in the commercial ad space is the fickle nature of fashion. You become the guys that are really good at doing this. Yeah. And you know you have the thought, you have the, you have the, the brave first clients who are the most creative agencies who use you and then everyone hears of you and you get inundated and then so they move on to something else. There's another shiny object. So yeah. being able to, to, you know, you've got places like RSA, the mill and, 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 and places who understand it. You, you've got to, it's almost like an investment portfolio. You, you've got to be um, broader than last year's cool thing if you want to survive, if you want to have longevity in this business, because it's, it's by its very nature, it's fickle, it's faddish. Mm -hmm. uh, is that, is that something you're super conscious of? You know, that, 
when you put it like that, it is a horrifying thing. I, I generally, for, for me, it's not been that way. I've not felt that way because um, we don't, at, le at least for myself, I don't feel I have a style exactly. Right. You know, um, I, I really base my, my skills more in communications and like finding what is a, a good way to communicate. I mean, I do love visual illusions. I love, you know, like animation and, and that kind of craft, but I also know they're not always the best way to make things. And I feel very malleable in that way. And I've been lucky because even in the case of Parisian love back in the day, I thought like, I'm not going to work on anything that doesn't have some kind of sculptural craft to it. Like, like speed tests, you know, I'm, I, that's all I really want to do. And then they come and say like, well, we want this thing that's just basically screen capping the user interface and tell a story with that. And like, what could be more boring? You know, like it, it hadn't, it hadn't been really done very much yet. And I hated that project when it first came out. I thought it was like totally not my style, but it till this day, it's the most important thing I've done. And probably the, the most like breakthrough thing that, that we've worked on. And, um, and so that just proves like having a style is not really all it's chalked up to be, you know, like yeah. the, the, there's, you can do more than your style. I think is yeah. the thing. it's interesting. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you think the secret of that success of that spot is? Is it, is it, it's, it's just, is it, is it the writing? Is it just the, it's the way in which people can relate? What, it, I mean, to me, there's a, there's a thread between a lot of links, a lot of your work. It, it's the sort of humanizing of technology. It, it's taking the stuff that's very cold, dry and engineering driven and giving it a soul. You know, mm -hmm. and that's what that spot did so well. You know, it people connect powerful. I mean, because now we're seeing it firsthand. You know, the tech giants are under the cosh. You know, they are. <laughs> and these these were early days where they started to see that they would be, and that the 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 strategy was to humanize them. Um, mm -hmm. and to show that they, they had a human, they had a soul, um, yeah. and that storytelling, um, was, was just, um, was, was so, was so interesting. I think the other, the other key part to me was these were brands that grew up digitally that whose businesses were all about clicking on links and things that were the opposite of powerful visual communication and 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 they reached a point and obviously it was the creative labs and all those other folks who came from the world of advertising who who convinced these people whose business was really not about that that they needed to be in this world it was the, the power of audio visual communication was something that um i think i think is a fascinating discussion you know that the, these brands that are rooted in something else and actually in a way in part of a way destroyed a little bit of that world um go back to the world that they destroyed because they mm -hmm. understand it actually ultimately has power it's sort of a it's a um 
the hero's journey kind of mythology. Yeah, um, it is fascinating. And you, I mean, you say it really well. It, it is, it, it, we didn't even necessarily, it, it's clear in hindsight, we didn't know it entirely at the time, but yeah, it is that sort of humanizing technology. And it's true that it's very cold, but it's also true that people use it for those very warm things as well. At least that's what oh, yeah. it's connected true. to at the time. Yeah. But what you also bring up is things that we we still are struggling with today. I mean, when I first got like realized, okay, I'm in advertising. One of the my biggest fears, the thing I knew I never wanted to do, was work on anything that really involved the female body because that was my least favorite part of advertising, was the um, objectifying yeah. the female body. And mm -hmm. and every time one of those scripts would come in, I would turn it down, and I felt like I could. You know, amongst like turning down cigarette ads and things like mm -hmm. that, those are easy. You know, what I didn't really entirely know at the time that it's 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 not it's not that easy, you know, to like have a um, morals, you know, in in that space. And and the things that we were working on for tech at the time, you're right. They they we felt like we were making the things that were sort of free of that. But the truth is that. Um, tech has its own role, you know, in a big, big tech has its own role in like these kinds of problems. We're seeing it like very heavy over the last five years. And we think about that a lot. The, the things that we work on a lot today actually um, are about not so much about the humanizing of that tech, because I think that is fairly well established. I mean, we still need to do that, not make it feel cold, but it's actually more about the the raw authenticity and and um, uh, feeling true and real uh, that is is the the thing that we work on the most and that that we feel like we need to really push on the most because um, we're in this world of not knowing what is real and fake now and the 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 raw realness of things and like making it feel human on that side, not yes, emotional, but also raw and real is the, is the thing that we find we work on the most. And that was the case when we worked on Snapchat's first global consumer campaign and, and things like that is to like help people understand that there's actually technology out there that can give you very real experience rather than talking to bots and, and fake things um, that you get on other platforms. Yeah. And I think, I think that's really that's that's powerful that you know there's the the generational split of you know a generation who can't live without being attached to this technology and the generation of several generations two generations above who just don't understand it and i think t i think t-mobile did a really good spot where they sort of said it's kind of not about the technology it's what you do with it and mm -hmm. what what this generation is doing with it is pretty amazing. And yep. it's, it suddenly it turns that discussion around um, because it's easy to be an outsider and not really, and to be, you know, like put your shields up. Um, 
So I know we're I know we're running close to time. Um, yeah, that went way faster than I thought. Yeah, I know. It's really amazing fast. these conversations. They just if they're good, they fly by, which is great. Um, yeah. Should we just close by talking a little bit about um, sort of where t- where tech? You know, when you think about directing and you think about this world, where technology is taking us. You know, and I think what was interesting you were talking about was this idea that we want more realness you know mm-hmm. although we yeah. have we have these we have 4k 8k it's just it's yeah. ridiculous yeah. is that real or is 1k more you know is 1k more real actually than 8k you yeah i i know my my gl2 i still keep my gl2 around um which is like my my college camera which is like 720p you know like the uh uh, yeah, there, there is, there is that real rawness and like how to capture that is, is something we talk about a lot. Um, but the, the, the amazing thing to me, that thing that I think about a lot is I, I go back to my, do you remember the, the director, what was it called? The, um, it was like the director's series or something that Palm put out that had Michelle Gondry um, Chris Cunningham and Spike Jones, who was like a series of three DVDs. And someone gave that oh, yeah, to me yeah, yeah. when I was in college. And I loved all of them, but I, I really like just fell completely in love with Michelle Gondry's work and um, was like a huge inspiration for me. And I remember thinking like, there, there's no one like this. Like this is so unique. And it really was like at the time, but you just open TikTok today and you have like thousands of Gondries, millions of Gondries out there, literally with like even better ideas, you know, and and they just didn't have a camera is what really was going on. And they 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 didn't have a outlet, you know, mm-hmm. the way that Gondry made one for himself, basically. Mm-hmm. And the the, the technology is changing, not, not just for like being able to capture something on video, but just jumping into cinema 4d or at like the editing tools in TikTok are phenomenal. Mm. Like the, the ability to edit that people didn't have before, they don't have to open premiere or, yeah, you know, yeah. things like that. They can, yeah. they can edit and add text and do, and they're such great communicators, you know, mm. like it's, it is really like, it's both daunting and just, amazing and it makes me so happy to see those things um i i the thing that doesn't make me happy is that it's just you know there's so much value there that is just kind of going to waste to a certain degree or just making lots of money for instagram and and tiktok but you know there's just like amazing communicators and directors and they don't even know the same way that i didn't know even as a senior in college that you know, there is real value to what I was doing beyond trying to be a celebrity, you know, on TikTok. And, and I think that that's one of the things I'm just like, when I see the change, the, the rate of change in the technology and stuff like that, that it, it's like, it's like pulling up a, a log and there's just like a billion ants under there. And they were, they're all there, like making like amazing shit. It's, it's just like awesome. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. I mean, when you you know back in my day, you know there were there were institutions like Digital Domain who yeah 
who existed because they had giant server farms that could render CG yeah. at the rate that needed to be rendered at, the quality it needed to be rendered at. And now it's almost in the phone, you know, which is, yeah. as you said, do you think, do you see that as um, in terms of recruiting talent, um, where, where you'll find your next talent is from those channels? You know, it hasn't happened exactly like that yet, but I, you know, the, the, the team that we're building does like the, um, one of our most recent creative director hires has like a lot of experience with Instagram, um, uh, creative development. And so I, I do think that's there. I, I haven't been sourcing through TikTok just yet, but you know, so there's sometimes I wish I could just call someone who made something on TikTok and just be like, let's make stuff, you know, yeah. like I, I do, I do feel that way sometimes hasn't quite happened, but, um, and I also, you know, I, I, maybe that will happen someday. I, I, I kind of, I kind of hope it will, because again, back to this thing about like hoping that there's more creative opportunities for creative people, like more, more like ways to make a living being creative. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just, I think for some people ha like being a Zach King and being just like a, a celebrity uh, YouTuber is, and making your work all about you is fine. And that, that is what they want to do. And that's how they'll, they'll make their living. But not every, and I feel this way myself, like not every creative person wants to be in front of the camera. Like, I think probably the majority don't. But the way that the system is built right now for TikTok and for Instagram and things like that is like kind of your only outlet is to make it about yourself or, or gain some kind of influencer status. And actually, a lot of creative people are quite introverted. So it kind of puts you in this tough position. It's like, I, I, I can make these things and I can get them out there, but the only outlet to make a living for myself that way mm -hmm. is to become an influencer. And I, that that is not sustainable from my point of view, but there's a world where those creative people can be have a sort of joy in their life for making things the way that they feel it, don't have to be a celebrity doing it and can make a really great living doing it. And I I... I don't know that that has yet infiltrated our industry the way that I hope it will, that they're all going to sort of like come in, you know, there's reasons that they don't, you know, advertising has its obvious, we talked about the, the morals and things like that. And, and, and so there, there's issues with that, but I think the more those voices come in, the more they'll change the industry to, to be a little bit better minded. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating. I think when you, you talk about the diversity and inclusion and all those other elements that the industry so desperately is lacking. Um, you know, to provide, it may not be an agency. It may be something that is the yeah. entity that finds this talent and gives it places that they can be themselves because they don't necessarily want all the constraints of, of working for an organization. Um, that I think is the, that is the future. Yeah, for sure. I don't think it's in agencies. I, I think it's definitely something new. I had a really interesting, just to end, just to build on that a little for the end, um, a really interesting conversation last year with someone in LA who who wants to create a sort of Warhol factory where 
you bring all these people together and actually you you get them away from the, the cool stuff is how they collaborate not yeah you yeah, still do their individual things but the 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 beauty is in the cross-pollination of these different disciplines and different skill sets and and, yeah. and trying to create a playground where those things could happen and i think that could be something that would be really exciting like a new future that's a great idea yeah and it's it should it will happen you know i yeah. i think something to that degree will happen there's just too much raw energy there to not yeah try and do something with it cool well aaron thanks so much for your time really great to meet you really great to chat um yeah we'll do this again sometime but um i'll let you know when uh, we, we put this up live but uh, great stuff thank you again for your time that sounds great thanks a lot ed it was super yeah. fun thanks, thanks have a This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.